So Colossians chapter 1. We are in verse 9. We'll do a kind of a quick review. We didn't really move too far through verse 9. But uh, remember that what we are doing is, is we're kind of dissecting the prayer um, of Paul uh, as he was praying for these individuals. And so verse 9 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So again, a quick recap. When he says or when he asks, uh, when he prays for them to be filled with the knowledge, uh, the idea there is that they are filled to the brim which carries with it the idea that every single facet of their life uh, down to the tiniest detail is going to be controlled by the spirit and by the knowledge of, of God. In this prayer, he begins by again asking that they will be filled with the ever-growing knowledge of the will of God. Uh, so that, again, remember that's not just an intellectual knowledge, but that would include the application of the truth of the word of God. Um, and so the knowledge then that, that he's praying that they will have will be a, a, a knowledge that translates into our human situation. So again, what we're looking at is the application of truth, understanding what it says, what it means, and then how we would use that in, in our life. And so we just started to touch on the word uh, understanding. Uh, and the understanding here, I think I have the definition there, uh, or at least part of the definition in your notes there. In the Greek language, it is sunesis. Uh, the, in the Greek language, the Greek sometimes described it as critical knowledge, meaning it is the ability to apply first principles to any given situation which may arise in life. So if we, if we extrapolate that out, the idea there is, is that the believer has the ability to think and assess a situation and is able to determine, I guess you would say, the foundational issues and, then, and what it is that we need to do in obeying the word of God. So there's this understanding of life to, to be able to comprehend what's going on is really very important. It's, it's the ability to assess what is really happening. That means sometimes we can see beyond the obvious. I'll give you a real simple example. Uh, many, many years ago, when I was still living in Hawaii, this, uh, an older lady lived behind uh, us, and she called me up one day and said that there were some cats, or actually kittens, that were under her house. And she didn't know where the mama cat was, and so there was three or four of them. And, you know, they were making all kinds of ruckus, and of course they're very hungry, they're afraid. And so I crawled under the house, um, you know, it's only about how much space, so I'm, you know, army crawl kind of a thing. But I get back there and I see him, so I reach out you know, to, to pick them up and bring them in. And man, they tore my hand up. Um, so I had to crawl out and go get gloves uh, and then come back and, um, uh, you know, pull them out. So in that scenario, if I, if I was a non-thinking person, when I first reach out and the cats then, or the kittens, scratch my hand, I could have reacted in anger and said, you moronic animals, don't you know I'm here to help you, and grab them and just thrown them against the wall. But I didn't do that. Why? Because I knew that they were afraid, that they were hungry, and so I put the gloves on to protect my hands, and I you know, brought a box, the blanket, and I, put them, you know, I lifted them up and put them in the box, got myself out, took them in the house, sat the box in the bedroom, 
you know, I brought a little thing of milk, whatever. They weren't coming out of that box. They weren't touching nothing. Uh, and so I just got a book and I came in the room and I sat down, uh, closed the door. They were in the corner and I just read. And then after about maybe 10 minutes, I'd scoot closer and read again. And just kept scooting closer so they would get used to me being there. And eventually, uh, within, you know, I, get, I don't know if it was an hour or whatever it was, within some time, you know, they became more accustomed to my presence. And then I was able to get them out of the box. And then, and then they, were, they started drinking the milk. And they didn't, once they started, they didn't stop. They were, they were famished, all right? But the idea there is, is that, that, and anyone could have done that, you're able to assess the, the situation of what's really going on. And so it, it carries that idea that when we grow in the knowledge of the will of God, is you will have a greater ability to assess what's really going on. You'll hear that sometimes when you hear Christians sometimes talk about what's going on in the news. They'll be talking about maybe certain types of legislation or certain kinds of actions the government is taking. And they'll say, well, the government or whoever is saying this, but when we assess it, what we know, based on what the Bible says, that's not what's going on. What's going on is, and then we can get into our analysis, uh, because it usually revolves around the fact, uh, what, what is human nature? Human nature is the natural desire to rebel against God, the natural desire to rebel against the authority of God, the absolutes of God. Man wants to be free from God, free from the idea of God, wants to be you know, the, the captain, so to speak, of his own destination, those types of things. And so some of the laws, some of the things that they're doing, maybe a great deal, is all geared towards that. That's what's really going on. That's what's, that's what's driving it. Sometimes those individuals may be kind of unaware of that themselves. So it's not a conspiracy thing. It's just what is. And we understand the nature of things because of the, will of, because of the, of the word of God. So again, what we need, though, again, is not just the intellectual knowledge, what the Bible says, but then the ability to translate that into our situations and see what's going on. And that's what Paul is praying for these individuals, that they will have that ability uh, with the word of God. So again, back to the, uh, the word understanding. So again, the Greeks sometimes described it as critical knowledge, meaning the ability to apply first principles to any given situation which may arise. So Paul, again, is praying that his friends may have wisdom and understanding, praying they may, uh, that they may understand the great truths of Christianity and may be able to apply them to the task and decisions which meet them in everyday living. Uh, and so that's what he's praying for. So as I mentioned before, when it comes to how you and I are to pray for both ourselves and for other believers, this is, you know, the prayers of Paul are great examples of the best way we can pray for each other. It is okay. So let's say that, that um, uh, John tells me that his wife has been diagnosed with cancer and he wants me to pray. And I will. I will pray for that situation, that the doctors will have wisdom, that if it's the Lord's will, he will heal her either supernaturally or through the treatment that she gets. I'll pray that she will remain strong uh, in her faith, that the God will give, grant her the grace she needs to deal with that situation and all that comes with it. We're praying for John, uh, that God will give him understanding of his wife's situation, of, of what's going on, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, I'll pray, be praying for all those things for them, and that would be appropriate. But that's not all that I'm going to pray. That's not all that we should pray. Because too often, we become very limited to where we're only praying for physical situations, where that becomes the dominant thing 
in our prayer life. So we're not trying to say we don't pray for that, but, that, but I do believe that it needs to become diminished so that when we're praying for each other, our main concern should be what is God's main concern. And that is, and I guarantee you that in that situation, would John need to be filled with the knowledge of God and have understanding? Absolutely. So he understands the truths of the word of God and how they apply to his situation, to what's going on with him, his wife, his family, and those kinds of things, so that he will have the proper perspective, so that he will not lose sight of what is the most important things, all that stuff that goes in there. So that's what we're praying for. So I still focus on that to a degree, but it's not limited to that. And then it's not then if she, let's say that God does heal her and it's all great and we thank the Lord and, we're, and we praise the Lord for that. Then I don't say, well, don't have to pray for John no more. Right now, I may not be praying as often, but when I pray for John and pray for his family, this is the kind of stuff that we're praying because we always will need this. We will always need um, uh, the work of God in our lives to continue to fill us with the knowledge of his will. And we should desire that. Because we don't have infinite knowledge. Uh, so as we grow, and as we mature, this is the kind of stuff that uh, is important. Thirdly, uh, the knowledge of God's will and this wisdom and understand, understanding must issue in right conduct. So in other words, so as I pray for, so again, back to the situation. As I pray for John in this situation, again, it's not just so that he has knowledge and understanding. He definitely needs to have that. We all need that as believers. However, what needs to happen with that, and as we pray for ourselves to have that, that then should be made manifest in the way we live and behave. If, if, our, if our behavior doesn't change, then something's, there's a disconnect somewhere. Right? Remember that God has, has saved us and is transforming us. Okay, so it's not this idea that, well, you know, there's this term I heard when I moved here, and I heard certain preachers use it. They talk about people getting their fire insurance taken care of. And what they meant by that was, well, they believe in Christ and not going to hell, as if that's all there is. Okay, that is not a, that's not a biblical way of thinking about things. That it, it, we are safe from hell, and we are grateful for that. But it doesn't end with that. All right? The idea is that I'm being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So that includes my attitude towards everyone, that is my attitude towards my wife, towards my children, towards my grandchildren. It doesn't mean that I'm treating them poorly. I might be it from time to time, but it, but it means that my treatment of them will continue to get better, become more Christ-like. The way that I treat other people, the way that I think about other people, the way that I respond to a spontaneous situation, which is always a great gauge to see where we are spiritually. Uh, normally, for example, on Sunday, when we gather together as believers, or when we come together on Wednesday night, we all have this idea in our mind, I am now going to church. And we don't always think this out, but we normally are going to behave very consciously. We, we're very, like for example, let, let's say that you tend to use foul language at work. Normally you'll be very conscientious that you're here. And that's not going to come out of your mouth which proves you actually have the ability to, to get rid of it. <laughs> but anyway, all right, so uh, and then when you, when you go somewhere else, you let your guard down, all right, which is not a good thing, but we know that's what, that's what happens. 
So the idea then is that living consciously like that is how we should live our lives all the time. Now that can sound in the beginning like it's very exhausting. And if you do it in the flesh, it is. If you're always trying to make sure that you portray an image of yourself, that, that will wear you out. And, and, and so you, you, you know, there's sometimes even a greater contrast when you quote unquote let your hair down. So the idea is that there needs to be a greater consistency in our life. I, I need to be the same here at home at work for, I don't know if I should use the word many, but I will. <laughs> so for many Christians, at least too often in our country, the place where there's the greatest difference in a behavior of a person is at church and home. And that's a problem. And that is one of the reasons why sometimes our children have such a hard time with the faith as they get older. Now, just because someone's kid's rebelling doesn't mean that means they're phony at home. So don't start doing that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, I know why that's happening. They're obviously phonies. Sometimes that's true, but not always. All right, so we have to be careful that we don't jump to conclusions. But th remember, this information is for ourselves first. And so we need to make sure then that as we live, we want to live that consistent life. And there's people who, who they're watching. When I was a manager of Pizza Hut, um, the restaurant that I was managing, this was back in Hawaii, um, I told the employees, because we had this humongous ice machine, so I told the employees, hey, whenever it's your day off, and you're going to go to the beach, and you need ice for your cooler, just come by and get it. You don't have to ask. It's fine. We've got plenty of ice. And everything was great. Well, I never thought anything of it. I never talked about drinking or anything. And on this one day I was off, and my wife and I and our kid were going to the beach, and so I go to Pizza Hut, and I'm filling up my cooler with the ice, and two of these employees come running out, and they say, we gotta look, we gotta look. And I go, what are you talking about? And they, they just kind of push me to the side, and they open my cooler, and they start going through to see what was in there. And they, and they, and they stop, and they go, there's really no beer in there. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't drink. And they go, unbelievable. We thought you were just saying that. No. I said, you want to look some more? They go, no. I said, well, put some more ice in there. You, bunch of, you dumped a bunch of ice out. All right? But the point is, is I, I don't even remember ever talking about it. But they were just, I mean, they were, it was a big deal to them. And they were, thank goodness. There <laughs> wasn't, you know, things I was embarrassed by. But the point is, people that are watching. And then there was a time in the jail when, when I was a chaplain, but, I, you know, there was this guy I said hi to all the time for years, for years. And uh, one day I walked into his office and he said, Chaplain, it's really good to see you today. Come on in and shut the door. <laughs> Never said that before. And so I shut the door and then he told me, that he had a long history of a lot of bad run-ins with pastors. It was a, now there's no excuse for him not going to church and finding a good church, but it, he had a bunch of horror stories. But this is what he said. He said, I've been watching you for three years. <laughs> My first thought is, oh no, quick review, three years, what have I done? <laughs> Whatever, so he had watched you for three years. And then he said this, he said, You're, you are the same, you're legit. And then he unloaded. 
And man, it came out 20 years of all this stuff he's been dealing with with his family. Uh, and the reason why we were getting all of that, his oldest son, which was adopted, was dying of AIDS. Was a flaming homosexual. They knew no pastors. They knew he was going to die soon. And he wanted to know if I would do the funeral. And I said, I would love to do the funeral, but I want to talk to your son. He said, absolutely. And I believe uh, that I went to go see his son every Tuesday night for about four weeks before he ended up going into, you know, going into a coma. Uh, if you're familiar with how AIDS works, there's certain things that happen. But anyway, uh, and I told them that he was going to go to a coma first, and he would also begin to lose his short-term memory and different things. So I read several books on it. And um, so, but I believe that he, uh, I asked his, after talking to his son the first night, which I just asked him a bunch of questions, I let him just talk, which, and he would talk for maybe two or three hours. And then I think by the third Tuesday I was there, I, I asked him a question and I said, can you honestly say that you have zero regrets if you die next week? He said, oh yeah, I, got I go, absolutely zero regrets. Everything's taken care of. He said, well, I said, before you answer, I said, can I tell you what I believe? So now I've been listening to him for two and a half weeks. I said, can I tell you what I believe? He said, absolutely. And so God was gracious, and I was able to take basically the next 90 minutes and explain in great detail the gospel and everything about the gospel and try to explain it so that he understood exactly everything that it meant and, and, and what it meant about him. And the next day at the jail, I went to go see his dad. His dad's name was Chuck. And I, and I, and I, went, I said, Chuck, I said, uh, how you doing? He goes, he said, Chapel, I'm doing good. And uh, he said, uh, something very unusual happened this morning at breakfast. I said, what's that? He said, well, Michael was up. Michael was, he was the one that was dying, Michael. And Michael uh, never got up early, uh, partly because of the disease and partly because he would often stay up late. Um, he said, Michael was at breakfast. He said, he's never at breakfast. I said, oh. I said, well, how'd that go? He said, it went really, really good. He said, I don't know what you guys talked about last night. He said, but I could guess. He said, but he told us that he thought he was ready to die, but he wasn't. And after talking to you last night, he now is prepared to die. And I said, wow. I said, that's really cool. I said, uh, can I tell you what we talked about? He said, well, just a little bit. <laughs> so I just basically talked to him about the gospel a little bit. But again, the point is, with all of that, is I had no idea this guy was scrutinizing my life. And what he was looking for was just any bit of inconsistency. Now, I, I wasn't living perfectly. Okay, it's not that. All right? And most people who are watching you aren't looking for perfection. They're not. What they're looking for is someone who's authentic. That means this. That then means that when you mess up, you tell people you're sorry and ask them to forgive you. You admit your mistakes. Remember, most of the world is terrified of admitting mistakes. You ever heard a politician tell you they were wrong? No. They, boy, they would say everything but that. And I don't care if they're Democrat or Republican. They're all the same. All right? and, the many, and most people just don't like to admit they're wrong. You know? They may say, well, I wasn't really wrong. You know? I, mean, I kind of made a mistake. You know? Yeah, pulling the trigger when the gun was under the guy's head, that's not a mistake. Okay? That's something different. Or whatever the case may happen to be. So the idea is if you live just a genuine life, 
and you don't have this hidden agenda, you're not trying to manipulate people, but people can see that, then who knows? One day somebody that you never imagined may come up to you and ask and just say they want, you to, they want to talk to you or they want to ask you a question or maybe they just may ask if you'll pray for them. It could be all kinds of openings. All right? And, we, and you should pray that that happen. Now, if it doesn't happen, don't worry about it. The key is, is that we need to make sure we live that way because we don't know whose life we may impact with that. And that's what this prayer is really all about, is that kind of thing. Yes, sir? So do you think that guy got genuinely saved? Yeah, because I talked to him the next week, and, and uh, we talked about the gospel, and he said that he believed in Christ. So, yeah. Really? Wow. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. And he was a very, very, very outspoken I don't know. Or did he just express the way that he got Well, I mean, I only see him once a week, so. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know. You know me, I'm detailed. So. Yeah. <laughs> I do know this. I know what was interesting was for a guy, now he really did have a great personality. He was extremely likable. I mean, he really was. He was terrific. And like I said, he was a very outspoken um, member of that community. And uh, when he died, when it came to the viewing, only one person from that community showed up. And then when it came for the funeral, only one person from that community showed up. To me, it was stunning. You know, normally, in any kind of community, you know, when someone is, first of all, that likable and that outspoken, you'll have a lot of people that will, will show up uh, for different kinds of reasons. And... Uh, Nobody. I mean, it was even his. He had a when I first met him in the hospital, he had a boyfriend of sorts. Very different guy. Um, but uh, and they they didn't have much contact afterwards. But that that guy did. No one showed up. I mean, I was just amazed. Um, I really thought that just out of respect or friendship or something, um, I just thought that spoke volumes about the supposed community that, that is there. But again, the point with all of that is that God used that to open some doors in ways that I never, I didn't even know that situation even existed. Had no idea what was going on in Chuck's life, none. And he would have never told me if, when I asked him how things were going, or what, you know. Even when I asked him before, I knew he had two boys. I said, hey, how's your sons? Are they doing well? You know, he's just not the nice general answers. You know, he didn't say, yeah, my son's dying of AIDS. You know, that came out later. So, uh, anyway. So the idea is Paul is praying that his friends, these believers, that they would conduct themselves in a way to please God. And so that's what's most important with that, is remember, we're not behaving in a certain way because we're thinking, I want to affect people. Or I'm thinking I want to influence people. All right? That can be kind of uh, arrogant or selfish. Right? Because what will happen is if, if you don't think that you're influencing people or you don't see it, right, that doesn't feed your ego, you can become disappointed or even upset. We live our lives to please the Lord. Whatever happens, happens. And we please the Lord, we're happy with that. Right? And, just, and uh, you know, one of the best illustrations of that, there was this, you know, when my youngest son was playing t-ball, um, you know, you go to the games, they're pretty wild, and uh, you know, all these little kids running after these balls and whatever. But this little girl got up the bat and uh, you know she's kind of wiggling around and getting all ready and you know taking forever to get ready to swing the bat. And then and then she stopped and she's looking over her shoulder. And the coach is like, go ahead, swing. 
you know, hit the ball, hit the ball. And so she, she yelled, Dad. And so we all, we all can see where she's looking. And we look over in the, on this side of the stands, and she yells it again. And nobody responds. And then she puts the bat down, and she yells real loud. And he was, he was in there with a the newspaper. And then he realized it was his daughter yelling. And everybody's looking at him. And he's, you know, kind of like this. So she whacks the ball with as hard as she can. She swings. The ball dribbles about 18 inches. And so she's run to first base as hard as she can. And 30 kids descend on the ball, which means <laughs> there's a big pile of humanity there. And so she gets to first base and she slides uh, into first base. The, still, the throw still hasn't been made yet, so she's safe. And so she stands up, and then the very first thing she does is she yells at her dad, and she says, did you see that? And the point of that is, with all the people that were there, and even her coaches, the only thing that mattered was what? Did her dad see? It's the only thing that mattered. Okay, nothing else was important. It's the same kind of idea. You know, when it comes to our Father in Heaven, He's the one we want to please. He's the one that's the most important uh, to us. He's the one that's made the greatest sacrifice. He's the one that we have that relationship with. And so that's, that's, and so again, that's what we're praying for. Remember, all of us suffer as human beings from the weakness of the flesh. We're all going to be tempted to do things driven by our ego, driven by, you know, seeking the praise or adulation of others. That, that's, just, that's human nature, all right? And, so, and we need to recognize that. We want someone to identify with whether we're suffering or whether we're great or whatever it happens to be. We're always, you know, not always, but a lot of times we're looking for that kind of stuff. And we get agitated to people and we get frustrated to people because they don't do what we want when we want them to do it and all that, you know, all the things that go into that. And so we, we, need, we need to pray for each other, pray for ourselves in this way, that we will be much more conscientious in our lives as Christians as we live. And so that's why this kind of praying is really so important. So for us to, to be able to, to live that way, for us to behave that way, in the way that God wants us to behave, we need the power of God because we don't have the power to do that. We, okay, we have the power for a little while. Okay, for example, anyone... Anyone can have the ability for a while to go to church every single Sunday and carry your Bible and sing the hymns. Anybody can do that. And you can do it for a long time. You can do it for years. Anybody can learn to control their language and not use cuss words. Anyone can do that. Right? All those things, you know, because so, say, well, I've been going to church for 20 years and I don't use language. And I go, well, good for you. I know a lot of people can do that. That doesn't mean that you're a Christian. All right? And so, but, for, but again, as I said, sometimes the greatest contrast in our lives is, is at home and at church. So that is the way we treat our wife or our husband or our kids when we're irritated or when we're tired or when we're sick. All right? We need God's power to overcome, the, and it sounds weird, but we need the power of God to overcome the weakness of the flesh. The weakness of the flesh is in obeying God's word and doing what is righteous. Right? The, 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 and so because the flesh is weak, we give in to our human passions all the time. And so we need to overcome those things. We can begin to overcome those things, even to a greater degree, through the power of God. That's why we're praying. Right? When we pray, we're not just going through the exercise of prayer to hear ourselves talk spiritually so we can feel more spiritual. The idea is that we are asking God, who is the creator of the universe, to act on our behalf or on someone's behalf and use the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, 
to transform their lives, to change them, the way they think, the way they behave, all those things. And that's, and that's what Paul is praying for. That's why he's praying for that. When he, you know, when he talks about, and you see some of his other letters, he'll talk sometimes to a church, he'll say that the whole world knows about your faith. As far as Paul is concerned, what he recognizes in that is that when he says there's others who recognize the faith of that church, it's because that the power of God is in that church. They are doing things supernaturally. Supernaturally doesn't mean that they're healing people. It doesn't mean that. What it means is they're doing what is unnatural as far as the world is concerned. They care for each other. They give their money even when they're poor. They, they give sacrificially. They forgive sin. You know, when someone betrays them, they're willing to forgive. I mean, all that, the world doesn't do that. The world, they want revenge, you know, kind of a thing. And so uh, we need the power of God. And then, of course, the human, the human mind, the human life, we're so stubborn that we need the power of God to change because nothing else will change us. Uh, other people can change us or help change us to a certain degree. We can be influenced. But we're talking about changing the essence of who we are. All right, because, again, a person can... It's kind of like that little kid that was, uh, he was acting up in Sunday school and he was standing in his chair and the teacher says, the last time I'm going to tell you this, you will sit down. And if you don't sit down, I'm going to make you sit down. So the little boy sits down and then he says, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. (laughs) So the idea with that is, is that sometimes that's what can happen to us, right? We can still be very rebellious inside. I can be nice to people. And still, in my mind, it's just all fake and phony. And what God wants is what? He wants in, internal <coughs> consistency. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he talks about anger. He talks about adultery and some of those things. You know, he, what he's bringing out is that if, if you do certain things externally, that's good. But that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for more than that. He wants internal goodness, internal faithfulness, internal purity. So that if I meet David for the first time... And, if, and, and even if he's the kind of guy I may not normally like, God's not impressed if I'm outwardly nice to him, but on the inside, I'm like, oh, whatever. No, what God wants is for the inside to match the outside. Now, that doesn't mean that I say to myself, well, until my inside catches up, whatever. <laughs> All right? It doesn't mean that. All right? I still treat him the right way, but I recognize whatever's going on, and I'm asking the Lord to help me you know, to, to get to that point so that, I, so that there's that genuineness. Because who knows, you know, me not liking him can have nothing to do with him. Like a lot of times it doesn't. He reminds me of somebody, or maybe he reminds me of myself. And that's why we really get irritated people who remind us of ourselves. Especially if you get away with the same things we get away with, it really bugs us. You know, they need to pay for what they're doing. <laughs> so anyway, so that's what we're praying for is the power of God. So Paul is praying that his friends will be strengthened with the power of God. Uh, because again, for some of us, maybe for many of us, the main problem is not uh, really what to do, but how to do it. Uh, we are oftentimes well aware of what we should do in a given situation. In fact, sometimes people will say that. They'll say, I just don't know why I did that. I knew it was wrong, and I did it anyway. Right? Kids go through that. Teenagers go through that. Adults go through that. And as you grow, grow older as an adult, sometimes... We still do that from time to time. We know better, and we still do it. You get irritated with somebody, and you want to yell at them, then you yell at them. <laughs> and you know that this, you know it's not going to solve anything, you know it's not helpful. Yes? My, my, my problem is just, this is my mother-in-law, so I have to just 
say, what's the difference between outlaws and in-laws? Outlaws are wanted. Uh, <laughs> yeah. My mother-in-law, I love her to death, but I'll, she'll get on my nerve and I'll snap at her. And then yeah. five seconds later, I go, I'm sorry, and she'll go, why don't you just not say it in the first place? And, and I mean, she says that all the time to me. I'm like, right. well, that's a good point. And, I, and I'm like, it just nullifies the apology completely. So I'm just like, oh, gosh. <laughs> Yeah, well. So she sees me all the time. She is a, a fruit inspector. Yeah. Just, just reaffirms you're a wretch. <laughs> all right, so look at verse 10. All right, so we come to the results. So, so, so as he's praying for them, he says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So he prays for them, and this is the expected results. Um, and it begins with having this walk, a walk that is worthy of the Lord. So there's an, uh, there's an old set of, of study books called Weast Word Studies. I know a lot of pastors have them, and they don't use them. I don't know why. Weast Word Studies. It's a German guy, W-U-E-S-T. It's out of print. So you won't be able to get them. So, but you might be able to find them online for free. Some, like, like the notes for free. Um, I, I, I haven't tried to find them on, because I have, I have them. But uh, um, anyway, that's what that is. So it says this. He says, when this world, uh, when this word, axios, is used with a genitive case, he's a Greek expert, so that's why he talks this way, as it is here, it means having the weight of another thing. It means of like value, worth as much. So the saints are to see to it that their manner of life, their conduct, weighs as much as the character of the Lord. To me, that's really strong. Uh, and, is, and, and the wording is very powerful. It says, he is our example in life, and the copy must be like the example. So Peter says, Christ also suffered on your behalf, leaving behind for you a model to imitate in order that by close application you might follow in his footprints, which is 1 Peter 2. So then in Expositors, that's another Greek um, commentary, it says, this lofty wisdom and insight is not an end in itself. It must issue in right practice. Doctrines and ethics are for Paul, are for Paul inseparable. Right conduct must be founded on right thinking, but right thinking must also lead to right conduct. So again, all this goes back to this idea, and I think the English conveys it just as well. I think we can understand the English, um, that we are to have a walk, and we are to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. In other words, I need to live my life in a way that my life is worthy to be called a Christian. That's the idea. Um, and I, and I, need to, I need to recognize, really, the, the weight of that, which is what Kenneth Wiest is getting to. The idea is that we... We know that Jesus is divine. We know that he lived a perfect life. We know that he, he's powerful. We know that he's a powerful example. All those things. And we recognize how good he is. And the idea then, if I'm going to carry his name, that's what it means to be a Christian, it means I belong to Christ, then I need to make sure I live my life in such a way that, that it reveals I recognize the weight of who he is, the weight of his glory, so to speak. And I'm trying to live in a way that reveals that or honors that or respects that. And so uh, that's how we are to think as we pray this for ourselves and for others. So when he says, uh, 
walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, the first phrase he uses is fully pleasing to him. So what he means by that, pleasing to God means more than just doing the will of God. Um, uh, in another book, they did a survey uh, of this phrase, um, pleasing to him, and said that what this does is it gives us some added insight of walking in a manner that pleases the Lord. It is well-pleasing to God when we present our bodies to him as living sacrifices and when we live so as to help others and avoid causing them to stumble. So God is pleased when his children separate themselves from evil. He is pleased when his children separate themselves from the evil around them, as well as when they bring their offerings to him. He is pleased with children who submit to their parents, as well as with saints who permit Jesus Christ to work out his perfect will in their lives. So there's this idea that as we obey the Lord, he's pleased with us. Um, again, back to the, uh, the illustration of a child. Sometimes when parents tell their children to do something, especially this usually happens when they're much younger, uh, just because of you know, the, uh, the way they are and their understanding of things. Kids naturally want to please mom and dad. They want mom and dad to be proud of them. That's the most important thing for them. So that's why then, since for example, let's say your kid is coloring, and when they finish coloring, they'll say, mommy or daddy, they want to show you what they did. Why do they want to do that? Right? It's not so that you can say that they're the greatest person on the planet. Right? But the idea is that they want to see that you're happy with them. So when you say, wow, you color in the lines really well. You're getting so much better. They love that. But they love it because it comes from you. Right now, they still like it when it comes from others. But they love it when it comes from you. When you tell them to do something and they do it, and then you tell them that you're very pleased that they obeyed you, man, that, just, that, that kind of reinforcement, which is a good thing, really does their heart good because they want to please mom and dad. So that's the idea with us is that we need to be, so we don't think of the commands of God then as being a heavy chain around our neck. Okay, we can tell that, you know, when our kids get older and they become teenagers, we can see the growth of the sin nature, right? Because when they're little kids, they want to make you happy. Then when you tell them to do something when they're older, they're like, whatever. Right? And if you say to them, I'm really proud of you that you took the trash out, you know, I, that's the sin nature taking over. But the idea for us as believers is that we really do, you know, God, he loves us, he cares for us, he's made sacrifices for us, going all the way back to the great sacrifice he made when he sent Christ. So the idea is that it should be inherent in us to want to do that. We want to please him. You see this in sports all the time, even in pro sports. You know, there are certain coaches, the sport on the most way with is football, but they're talking about this even on the pro level, they're talking about certain coaches that, that players really want to play for. Right now, the coach is not as good as the players they are. They're the ones making all the money. But they, but, you know, they, they understand what's going on. They understand the roles of all, all these guys that make up this team. And when it comes to the coach, they want the coach to be happy with them. Now, it's not just because the coach is the one who decides who plays and who doesn't play. That's, that's a small part of it. They want that man to be happy for them. And then, there, and then sometimes there'll be certain coaches that you hear other former players saying, well, when it comes to so-and-so, these players were run through a brick wall for them. And so that's their way of expressing that this individual has such a great influence on them 
by his personality and all these different kinds of things, these individuals are willing to do anything for that individual. And that cohesiveness is what you know, makes a team good, da 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 right, But that's kind of the idea. And so that's this relationship. That's why we often talk about this relationship that we have with Christ. We're not just doing things just to do them. Right? We, are, you know, we, we talk about knowing Christ, pleasing Christ, speaking with Christ, Christ speaking to us, Christ loving us, our loving Christ. All those words that we use are words that we use in relationships with people, with individuals. God is a person. He's not a human person. Jesus is human, but he's both human and God. But the idea is that he's a person. He's not just some spirit floating out there. He's not some, you know, mass of energy that has no personality. Uh, he has a personality. We, we have personality because God has personality. We're made in his image. And so all this is kind of woven into this. And so, again, this is what we pray for. And this is how we pray. This is one of those many different facets of Christianity that really sets Christianity apart from all these other religions that are out there. You, you read about or you watch or you talk with individuals, whether that person is, is a Muslim, or that person is a Buddhist. They're not talking about, no one talks about being like Allah. No one talks about Allah loving them. And that they, you know, there's, there's, not, there's not that. It doesn't exist. They don't talk about hearing from him and that Allah, you know, there's, just, there's a few of those things sprinkled in, but not in the way that Christians do. And remember, that is not just the way we talk. We have a, there's 600 hymns that talk about that kind of stuff. Six, all these hymns that we sing, all the doctrine that's in there, most of it centers around God and his relationship with us, what he's done for us, what he wants, and there's some, what we do for him, all in, in that relationship. So we sing about it. People write poems about it. They write stories about it. There's, there's you know, all these different themes that are throughout the scripture are all there intended to enable us to understand this relationship that we have with God, and that God wants that. And it goes to the very beginning, the book of Genesis, chapter 1. When God creates Adam and Eve, it mentions specifically that God would walk in the garden with them in the cool of the evening. Now, we're not sure what it means by walking with them, except this. God was physically present. They knew he was there. He would meet with them at this appointed time in the garden to converse with them. I have no idea what they talked about. It's not in the Bible. But what's interesting and what's important is that that relationship is seen from the very beginning. And when Adam and Eve sinned, that stopped. That ruined that. There's no more of God walking in the cool of the evening in the garden with Adam and Eve after they sinned. What happens is they're kicked out of the garden. That's over. And, and so then the rest of the story is what God has done to what? Reconcile us, bring us back to him. Reconcile means to bring back to, uh, and the idea with, with uh, as mankind is to bring us back to the original kind of relationship that mankind had with God in the beginning. That's what Adam and Eve had. And so that's what all this is, and that's what all this stuff that we're praying for and what we're thinking about and living this life, that's what all that revolves around is that. And so, and so that's how we are to think about things. So Paul, again, summarized, I guess you could say all this. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It reads, Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And so that's, that's what should be on our mind, is how can I please God? So it is about obedience, but it's not like, great, I got more commands to do today for God. 
what does he want me to do now? It's never that. Um, and again, it kind of goes back to, uh, um, you know, even if you look at the relationship with the husband and wife, you know, there's this, there's this idea that husbands, husbands and wives serve each other, right? It's their duty, right? But, it, but when, they, when they do their duty, they're not just doing their duty. So like, so in my home, I made a deal with my wife a long time ago. I fold, I fold all the clothes. I do a lot of the wash. She does some of it, but I fold all the clothes. And there's reasons for that, but anyway. So when I do that, I don't just say, well, I did my duty. I hope you're happy. That's not, no. I love her. I'm the one that made the deal. I'm happy to do it because I care about her. Now, I'm not going to come to your house and do your laundry <laughs> or fold your laundry. You know, I like you, but that, you know, that's just not going to happen. All right? So, but I do that because I care for her. So there's times my wife does it automatically. So today, she, you know, uh, this is what happened today. So she said, you come home for lunch? I go, yeah, I'm going to come home for lunch. She goes, okay, well, bless her heart, I'm going to make you T-bone steak and baked potato. Yeah. So guess what I had for lunch? T-bone steak and baked potato. Why did she do that? Because she loves me. She didn't say, well, I hope you like the steak because I did my duty today. Right? That, would, that would ruin everything. In fact, after a while, what we, what we would probably say to our spouse, don't even bother. I'll have a hot dog. You know, that kind of thing. Because that bothers us. So the idea is, so the idea is, 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 is you want to have that, you know, you want to have that relation. We can have, and we are to have that kind of relation with God. I want to please him. So he's not, you know, he's not standing with a whip, you know, saying, you better do this and you better do that. All the commands he gave us really are for our benefit. They really are. Uh, even all the things we are told not to do, uh, it's for our benefit. Uh, so, that our, so that we can... So our lives can flourish, right? God really, he wants us to enjoy the world he created. And, he, and even though he created for his glory, which is true, at the same time, he created it for us, for us to enjoy. Because think about it. Why did God make the thousands, the hundreds of thousands of different kinds of flowers on the earth with all those colors? Why did he do that? What purpose does it serve? It just looks really awesome. But along with that, he gave us the ability to see color. He did that for us. And then these waterfalls, just, you know, I grew up in Hawaii, lots of waterfalls, they're great, you know. And uh, they're just really cool, and they're beautiful. Why did God do that? Because that's what he's like. And when I see that, I go, man, this is so fantastic. And I can see that, and I can enjoy that, you know, and that it's just fantastic. And you just go on with all the different things of the universe. So, again, this idea of pleasing God and being happy in God uh, is, is something that we should be praying for. Because remember that, again, we live in a world that's been cursed by sin. Everything in the world uh, that, that Satan can get a hold of, he's trying to use to diminish that and to ruin that. And we ruin that ourselves by our own sinful choices, right? And so, you know, God is, is overcoming those things and helping us to overcome those things in our lives. And there will be a day will come when all that will just be gone. And there will be nothing to diminish God's glory, nothing to diminish our joy. Uh, we will enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. And just so you know, 
Because people want to wonder, what would the new earth be like? It would be a lot like this one. Just better. More beautiful. So, I think I grew up in a place that's the closest to what the new heaven and new earth would be. That would be called Hawaii. But anyway, I'm sure someone else may think that growing up in the desert was beautiful. So, you know, I guess if you like brown. So anyway, also, uh, we'll just touch on this um, just briefly. But, but this kind of, this clearly goes hand in hand uh, with what um, we were talking about when it comes to pleasing him. It says, so we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. All right, so fruitfulness. Fruitfulness the idea of fruitfulness in the Bible is you are reproducing the character of God in your life. The uh, fruit is used in two ways in the New Testament. All right, number one is used when we reproduce ourselves. So the idea with that is when we are sharing Christ with non-believers, leading them to the Lord, when we're discipling believers. We're, what we're doing is we are reproducing ourselves and other people. We, we all do that to one degree or another. Some of us have opportunities to do more of that than others. But if you have children, right there, you are to reproduce yourself, your character in the Lord, in, in other people. And we're to do that wherever we go. So that's one kind of fruitfulness. That's only one kind. Because sometimes uh, in the past, you know, some pastors will give a sermon that is geared to make you feel guilty because they'll say that if you've never led anyone to the Lord, you're not bearing fruit and you're living in sin. Uh, not sure we can say that. It's, 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 we, don't want to, we don't measure fruitfulness only by the number of individuals who lead to Christ. And there are some individuals who can lead a life where they may never even really meet an individual who they have an opportunity to share Christ with because of what they do. Right, that can happen. So we want to be careful with that. That is an important thing. Absolutely very important. But it's not the only thing. Yes? Is it true that the same one plant one, yeah, that's in the, it's, in the, it's in the Bible. Yeah, there'll be sometimes you may never actually lead that person to that point, but you may be planting the seed. And there's others who that's all they do. It's for whatever reason they have. That. And there's those who are able to do all of that. So there's many aspects to that. Um, yes? Well, think about it this way, okay? You don't lead you know, a number of people to Christ, but think about infinitely speaking, leading one person to Christ. Well, of course. Absolutely. I mean, but the, the gravity yeah. of that alone should... Yes. Well, there are some preachers in the past who have tried to make people feel guilty because they're not, you know, every single time they're out well, doing that. Well, think about it this way, too. The first time, like, I had a brother-in-law that was a Buddhist. Yeah. And I tried to, I brought a Bible once. He about ran me out of his, because he was dying. And he about ran me out of the room. Right. Because I've read the Bible, and I'm like, okay, I've read the Bible, too, and I still don't understand it. And he read it, like, once. Okay? Yeah. But the thing is, I know when he died, he died, like, a month later. Mm -hmm. I know for a fact because he didn't know God or Christ, right. he's in hell. Yep. So the flip side of that is like, well, oh, I've I, I never led anybody, or never, uh, I only led one person to Christ. Well, how about I know for a fact that somebody I talked to and tried to influence went to hell. Yep. Well, the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us it's going to happen. It says, to those who are perishing, we are the stench of death. And to those who are being saved, we are the fragrance of life. But to me, the gravity, and like I said, I try not to get overwhelmed. I tend to be emotional. And the, uh, the I gravity do. that, I mean, if you sit there and think about that more than 15 minutes. Yeah. And think about, okay, the person I know, and I've known for 50 years, mm -hmm. and I love, and he's my brother-in-law, I had a relationship with him, you know, is in hell for, for an eternity, being mm -hmm. tormented.
tormented. And not only in hell, like, you know, like some people think, oh, well, he's in hell and he's reliving every bad moment. No, not only is he doing that, but God is torturing him for eternity. And you know that person. And you're like, wow, that's pretty, uh, pretty. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. Mean, that should bring you to tears. Yeah. The, um, it really should bring you to tears. Yeah. I agree. Yes, ma'am. I just wondered about, like what Mike's talking about, like uh, Lazarus and the rich man. Mm-hmm. The rich man could see Lazarus. Yep. Lazarus could see the rich man. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to be happy. And, and it wor- you know, I was worried about it at one time. And mm-hmm. still think about it. If we're going to see and know who the, not only did he see him, but he knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And we see our loved ones or people we knew on earth suffering. Mm-hmm. Well, in the eternal order, there doesn't seem to be, there's no indication that we will see those who are in the lake of fire. So I think it's that way now with hell, because I believe that story is a true story. I don't believe it's a parable. But in the eternal order, it's, it, there does, there's no indication that we will see that, that we will see them or they'll see us. There's a complete separation. Oh, so you don't think Lazarus saw the rich man? But the no, rich no, man he did. Him. But remember, the rich, the rich man's not in the lake of fire. He's in hell. Lake of Fire is a different place. Because in the end, when you read Revelation, the, the people who are in hell, that is dumped into the Lake of Fire. And the suffering there was worse than it is in hell. Yeah, he was still suffering. Oh, yeah, but it's going to be worse. But the rich man yeah. could see over the heavens, at last, and Lazarus could see at that time, but in the future, the people that are in hell, and they can then wish that they had... There's nothing that indicates that they'll think that. I think I think they'll probably still be cursing God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, another aspect too as well is, uh, I mean, do you think in heaven we'll even remember? Because I mean, you got to think about it. okay, we're depressed because our family member died and we know they went to hell. Will we? You think? I mean, I know it doesn't mention in the Bible, but will we have? How can we? Like she said, how can we be happy when we know? Well, okay, we can't see in the hell. Because your no, your thought life will be completely sanctified by God, and so you, you will recognize you, you will recognize that those who are suffering, that that in some ways is to the glory of God. That will be much more important to you than that, and so. And the Bible does say clearly that God will wipe away every tear. It doesn't say wipe your memory clean. That's what I was but he does like, say. It's me. I'm like, it's kind of like you said, well, wipe away every tear, but you're like, okay. Because, you know, you always hear people say, well, I know so-and-so is up in heaven looking down on me. To me, I don't think that's true because I don't think anybody up in heaven is looking down on earth and going, and I'm not trying to offend anybody here that believes that, but I don't think they're going to But the Bible doesn't indicate that. So. Yeah, I don't think they're going to be worried about, I don't think my dad's up there in heaven or, you know, Looking out, I'm going, I'm proud of you, Mike. I just don't think that. I think no. he's got bigger things to... Yeah, bigger fish to fry. Yeah, I mean, there's more. I mean, there's just more. When you're in heaven, there's just more stuff. To, to yeah. Do. That's very comforting, though, that, um, that, of course, we love God first, then family, mm-hmm. then work. So we will know the Lord, be with the Lord, love the Lord so very much. Mm-hmm. That's what's important to us. And somehow we're we'll reaching the glory of God. That's what's going to matter, the glory of God. Yeah, and it's, it, we, just, we just have to be... Most important. Yeah. Well, it should be, it's now, but... Yeah, it's just difficult to speculate it is, it on is. how that's going to be just because of the state that we're in now. We wonder. 
Yeah, I agree. You know the you know when they say the red robin, you know when you see a red bird, it's like somebody from heaven come to visit you. Oh, I've never heard that. That's horrible. Uh, that's horrible. <laughs> yes, that's what my grandma that. used to tell well, me. Well, that kind of well, stuff. What I'm saying is, what <laughs> that is not just when you see a red bird. What you know is it's a red bird. Okay, one more thing. One more thing, real quick, and then I gotta pray. So just so you know, and we'll talk about this next week. The other kind of fruit uh, is uh, the reproduction of God in us. You know, there's the fruit of the spirit, which is the natural byproduct of the spirit of God living in us. Um, and so we will talk about those two things a little more uh, next week uh, when we get together. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful again because of your goodness and grace. We thank you, Father, again for this great prayer that we have here of Paul. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, cause us to think about this prayer and how we pray about ourselves and how we pray for others. I pray, Lord, that our hearts be burdened to pray in this manner more often for others. We ask, Lord, if it be your will that at times you would allow us to see the benefits of this, to see or to hear how others talk about their growth in the Lord. And, and if we can be encouraged, Father, knowing that some of the things that we hear are, are in result of the way that we're praying for other people. So, Father, we ask you to help us to be more diligent when it comes to praying and to realize, Lord, that there is really a great deal to pray for. We are thankful, Father, again, for those who have been praying for us. And we ask, Lord, you would bless them, and we, we thank you for that. We ask now, Lord, that as we are dismissed from our time together, that you will guide and direct us and keep us safe. Cause us, Father, to remember these things and to think about them, to meditate on them. That, Father, they may, they, they may become a part of our knowledge uh, and the way that we understand life on a regular basis. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.